You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Well, after Luke gives record of the birth of John the Baptist and then at the beginning of Luke to the birth of Jesus, Luke then spends the rest of his second chapter detailing for us uh, a day in the life of Jesus there in Jerusalem uh, at 40 days of age, so in his infancy, and then a second scene uh, when Jesus is 12 years old. And so really what we get here in this section is the childhood in many ways uh, of Jesus. Now this day when Jesus was 40 days old was a very special day. Uh, it was a day that Mary would be uh, offer a sacrifice in order to be purified uh, after giving birth to a son and declared ceremonially uh, clean uh, once again. And then it would also be a day of dedication, dedicating Jesus as the firstborn child uh, to the Lord. And we'll see a couple of prophetic figures who will show up, Simeon and Anna, who will declare great prophetic promises uh, about the Lord and declare that he had fulfilled great promises that had been made uh, to them. But we begin in verse 22 where Luke records, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, and so this is Mary and Joseph, brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And, verse 24, to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so, at the 40th day of Jesus' life, uh, Mary and Joseph go to Jerusalem for two distinct purposes. Now, one major purpose, like I mentioned, is that uh, according to the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, the people of Israel, when a woman would give birth, uh, at day 40 of her son's life, uh, she would go to the temple and offer a sacrifice that would uh, declare her as pure, purified, clean before the Lord. If she had a daughter, she would show up on the 80th day uh, of her daughter's life. And so here, Jesus being a little boy, day 40 of Jesus's life, uh, they come to the temple in order to offer this particular sacrifice. Now, Leviticus 12 is where you would actually find the description of the sacrifices that uh, these young couples were to offer uh, before the Lord. And the interesting note is that the normal sacrifice was that of a lamb. Uh, but in, in Levit Leviticus 12, verse 8, it says that if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. Now, a couple of interesting things about that. Number one, notice that Mary here has to offer a sin offering before the Lord. She's a sinner just like everyone else. As much as she was a godly, wonderful, incredible woman, uh, she was not sinless as some suppose her to be. She was offering this sin sacrifice before uh, the Lord. But the second thing really to point out, and the main reason there for them going was, of course, to declare her as pure. But it says in Leviticus 12, verse 8, that if they cannot afford a lamb, they could offer this alternative sacrifice of a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And that's exactly what Joseph and Mary offered 
indicating that they could not afford a lamb, which of course tells us a little bit about the economic status of this young couple. And uh, to me, that declares once again the beauty of Jesus and the beauty of his great incarnation and humility for us because, you know, not only did God become flesh and dwell among us, but the lifestyle that he chose for himself was not that of luxury, but was that of relative poverty uh, in that day and age. But the, so the first purpose was really for them to be able to go through a ceremony whereby Mary would be declared uh, pure according to that old covenant. But the real purpose and the really kind of the movement of this text, it seems, is that Jesus himself would be dedicated uh, unto the Lord. And that's what Luke says in verse 22, to present him to the Lord. And in verse 23, he quotes from Exodus chapter 13, uh, which in which God says, listen, all of the firstborn, consecrate them to me, whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And of course, this is what God declared after the original Passover, when God spared the firstborn uh, within each home uh, in Israel that had the blood of the pure and spotless lamb on its doorpost. And of course, throughout all of Egypt, every family that did not have the blood lost their firstborn to the angel of death. But God protected those who were under the blood. And after that, declared that the firstborn uh, of, of every family, uh, both of man and beast, belongs to me. Now, a little bit later, God uh, substituted the tribe of Levi as a replacement for that requirement. And so a lot of times what people in Israel would do is they, they would find a Levite after they had a son, uh, their firstborn child, and they would give him some money and uh, as a thank you, basically, to say thank you for, uh, you know, redeeming our child for us and being that firstborn payment that God uh, has required. But really here, what we're seeing is Jesus being set aside for the work of the Lord. Even at 40 days of age, it's as if there's this massive consecration moment and uh, his work uh, has now begun. Now, in verse 25, it says, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And now I want you to see there in verse 25, the incredible description of Simeon. I mean, we could spend the entire time just looking at the description of this man's life. We, after all, live in a culture and world where it seems as if we need men to look up to. And here is Simeon. First of all, he was a righteous man, it says. And this is more than the imputed righteousness of Jesus. This is the kind of life that he lived. He was a just and righteous man. He was devout as well. That means that he was pious. He was godly. He set his mind upon the things of God. He was waiting for, it tells us there in verse 25, the consolation of Israel. There was something that he was looking forward to, and it was the coming of the Messiah, which would be, of course, of great consolation or comfort to the people of Israel. And so there, there the Holy Spirit is upon him, and it had, verse 26, been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit 
that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so the spirit upon him uh, in verse 25, something had been revealed to him by the spirit uh, that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. And so Simeon is, uh, has a strong relationship with the Holy Spirit, like many of the prophets in the Old Testament era. And so having a relationship with the Spirit, verse 27, he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do to, for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Now just imagine this scene. There's this young little family, Mary and Joseph, a little baby boy, 40 days old. This is not uh, an uncommon kind of scene. This wouldn't have been the kind of scene that would uh, cause anybody to take note. They would have been able to blend in with the crowd, but not for Simeon. The Spirit was upon him, and he was able to see something that other people could not see as a result of the Spirit uh, being upon him and gifting him in that particular kind of way. And so he goes, and he takes Jesus in his arms. I mean, you don't say no to a man like Simeon. And he blesses God. Here we have really the third hymn of thanksgiving recorded by Luke. You have uh, Mary's song and Zechariah's song and now Simeon's song before the Lord or his declaration uh, of praise. And he simply declares holding Jesus to the Lord, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. And he says, I'm, I'm ready to die. I've seen the Christ. I've seen the Messiah. He says, verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And what, of course, an incredible paradox this all is. There you have the people of Israel some of them, you know, just going through outward external motions, not really genuinely thinking of the Lord. But no doubt people like Simeon and like Anna were on the scene and they were crying out for the Messiah. They were praying for a deliverer. People like Zechariah and Elizabeth joining in with them. And so often the prominent popular thought was simply that when the Messiah came, you know, he would be glorious. He would drive out the Romans. He would bring Israel back into prominence uh, militarily and nationally, expand the borders and really produce a glorious nation uh, in competition with the glory of Israel during the reign of David and Solomon. And, and, and instead of that kind of coming, Simeon is holding this little 40-day-old baby in his arms. Very humble, very weak, very dependent, you know, needing his mother. And he says, this, this boy, my eyes have seen your salvation. You know, this little impoverished couple from Nazareth comes in with a newborn baby 
And Simeon is seeing the salvation of all of mankind, Jew and Gentile alike, he says in verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. He sees all of this in Jesus. And I think it's just so important to realize that so often uh, Jesus and the way that, that God works is so opposite the way our natural mind might think and desire. Now, the big part of Simeon's prophecy is to declare there in verse 32 that Jesus would be, as I read a moment ago, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Now, this was glorious and also, in, by many, unexpected, even though there were Old Testament hints at this reality. Uh, this was an unexpected thing. And so, verse 33, his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So as Mary and Joseph are marveling over these statements from Simeon, he continues and blesses both of them, but then has a specific and, in one sense, ominous word for Mary. He announces to her, first of all, that Jesus was appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. You know, the truth is that Jesus does unite people of various uh, tribes and nations and tongues, as the Bible puts it. He unites us together. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, uh, slave nor free, male nor female, barbarian, Scythian, uh, but all, you know, all are one in Christ Jesus. Uh, and so G Jesus is a wonderful uniter, but at the same time, his message also brings division. He himself is not divisive, but his message and his presence uh, often results in division uh, amongst people who do not believe in him. And then he says to her in verse 35, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. You know, not a literal sword, obviously, because that wouldn't go through her soul, but her soul would be pierced. This was a figurative picture. And of course, we know from John's gospel that Mary was actually present at the crucifixion of Jesus. And so just a great heartache that this woman would endure and face. But notice there at the end of verse 35, and he says concerning Jesus, the thoughts from many hearts will be or may be revealed. You know, the interesting thing is that a person's response to Jesus seems to be an indication of their true inner position. When there is spiritual pride and uh, self-righteousness, when the message of Jesus uh, gets into that kind of heart, there is general resistance and hatred and opposition. But where there is spiritual humility and brokenness and a sense of need, when the message of Jesus comes into that kind of heart, there is an acceptance. And so he says the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now, there that day, verse 36, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, 
worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Now, this is often what Luke will do, placing male and female together. You know, the promise was given to Zechariah, and then the next thing you know, a promise is being given to Mary. And uh, here now to uh, Simeon and also through Anna. And this is very customary with Luke and appropriate as well because Deuteronomy 19 verse 15, amongst other places in the Old Testament, taught that by the evidence of two or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so Simeon was witness number one. And now you have this woman, Anna, this prophetess, Anna, and she comes in and Luke gives us some specific details uh, about her. She was of the tribe of Asher, the daughter of Phanuel. And it says in verse 37 that she uh, was there as a widow until she was 84 years old. And now there's a little bit of uh, debate as to exactly linguistically what that means. And reading the different uh, scholars who are able to wrestle with the original language in this kind of way. There are some who think that what Luke is saying is that, you know, this woman uh, was had lived with her husband for seven years and then at, he had died and now she is 84 years old. And so she never remarried. And so you imagine a woman, perhaps she got married at the age of 18 and perhaps her husband then, seven years later, age 25 is when he dies. And so that would mean that she'd experienced 59 years of widowhood. But some think that what Luke is indicating is that she'd actually been a widow, not for 59 years, totaling up to the 84th year of her life, but that she had been a widow for 84 years making her, of course, over 100 uh, years old uh, at this time. And I probably lean to the prior, just thinking about the lifespans at that time and all of that, but uh, we'll find out someday. Either way, <laughs> she was a single woman for many years, at least 59 years or so of, you know, uh, this widowhood. And she decided to use her time in simply waiting for the Lord. It says there, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer uh, night and day. And she just there waiting for the Lord, using her time, using her widow years as worship years and waiting for that redemption of Israel. And so there she is, you know, a figure upon the temple mount. People who know anything about the temple at the time would have known about Anna and she would have been quite the figure there. And so for her to come and see Jesus and begin to speak of Jesus to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel, well, that's an impressive witness, basically. And so she speaks to everyone, and what a beautiful woman uh, Anna uh, is before the Lord, just using her life wonderfully well. And verse 39, when they had performed everything, According to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. 
Now, uh, Luke doesn't give us the portion of the life of Christ. And we're going to fast forward to the age of 12. But he doesn't give us the portion of the life of Christ that Matthew gives to us in Matthew 2, verse 13 to 21, where because of the threat of Herod, Joseph warned in a dream, took his family down to Egypt, hid there for a season, and then eventually moved back to Israel and being warned by God again, decided to move back to their original hometown of uh, Nazareth. Luke just jumps right to that particular moment, fast forwarding from that 40th day in the life of Jesus to his childhood uh, there in the city of Nazareth. And the child grew, verse 40, and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, this brings us to the one biblical snapshot concerning the childhood uh, of Jesus. We have, of course, that little, you know, season there uh, of his infancy, uh, the, the, the wise men coming and worshiping him, uh, the uh, dedication there in Simeon and Anna in the temple at day 40. But Luke is going to jump forward to a time when Jesus was 12 years old uh, here in these next few verses. And the unfortunate thing is that for some of the early Christians, uh, it was not enough for them to simply have the word of God uh, declaring what it wanted to declare about the life of Jesus. And so uh, there were those who, in an attempt to highlight Jesus's divinity, uh, created some early Christian legends that started to circulate around well after the life of Jesus, uh, but trying to uh, declare some kind of supernatural, wild childhood uh, of Jesus. One of those is the infancy gospel of Thomas, even though it was written years after Thomas would have died and, and uh, been gone from the scene. Uh, that didn't stop the uh, author from putting Thomas's name on it. And it has these very bizarre stories. Uh, about the life of Jesus, stories that we just have to simply reject uh, because it's quite clear that he lived his life uh, not just always tapping into the, the benefits of his deity, but it seems as if he set those benefits aside and lived a pure and a spotless life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit came upon him at his baptism, he was then empowered and strengthened to go out and do the preaching, teaching, miraculous ministry uh, that God had called him to and eventually uh, end there on the cross, atoning for the sin uh, of the world. And so, uh, unfortunately, there are these people who have tried to fill in the gaps about the childhood of Jesus, but here's the one biblical story we have about his childhood. And so it says in verse 41, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. Now, what it doesn't say here is whether or not Jesus had gone to Jerusalem previously or now because he's 12, this is the first time that he's actually gone uh, with them uh, for the Passover. And it says in verse 43, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching uh, for him. So you have this scene. And of course, 
uh, at the Passover. There would be massive crowds of people there in Jerusalem. The Jewish men, after all, had been uh, commissioned by God in the Old Testament to come to uh, Jerusalem three times a year for worship. But it appears that by the first century, even a lot of Palestinian Jews would only go to Jerusalem once a year. And so, but we, what we do know here is that Joseph and Mary, they did go every year at least at the feast of the Passover. And uh, this wasn't just a Joseph thing, but Mary, uh, it appears, went as well. And so they get there and he's about 12 years of age. And when they're leaving now, it took them a full day's journey uh, thinking that he was in the group to realize that he wasn't in the group. And you can imagine how this happened at the end of the day. Joseph and Mary come back together, the men probably traveling together, the women traveling together. And at the end of the day, coming together and discovering that they don't know where Jesus is. And so they began to search for him and realized, well, we better go back to Jerusalem and find him. And so after three days, they found him, verse 46, in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, in the temple, there were all these different teaching porticos and porches where people could gather together to study God's word. Usually, these teachings were led by licensed teachers, uh, but of course, Jesus was not licensed, and he, of course, taught there in the temple from time to time during his earthly uh, ministry, but you can understand why they would want to make an exception uh, for him. But there he is at 12 years of age, sitting among these teachers, and he's listening to them and asking them apparently very intelligent questions because they were amazed at his understanding and they were amazed at his answers. And when his parents saw him, verse 48, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. You know, classic parents, they finally find Jesus and realize that he's okay. So there's no need for them to say, are you okay? Instead, they say, why have you treated us so? You know, we've been looking for you. Your father and I have been trying to find you. Why did you do this to us? This is horrible. But Jesus responded, the first recorded words of Jesus. And he says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Mary said, your father and I have been searching for you. And Jesus said, I must be in my father's house. He is drawing a sharp distinction between them and between Joseph and between his heavenly father. And Jesus consistently lived with that message. You know, constantly doing the will of his father, consumed with the desire of his father. And so really that first recorded word from Jesus is enough to let us know that this will be the tenor of his entire life and his entire ministry. And in one sense, we would say that here at 12 years of age, he is confident and has great clarity concerning his identity. 
And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. You know, it almost seems shocking to us that they would be shocked or that they would not understand what Jesus was referring to. But, uh, you know, 12 years had gone by. It's not like the angel Gabriel was there every single day uh, t- speaking to them and checking up on Jesus. No, they lived a fairly normal family life. And perhaps that regular normal family life had blunted the angelic vision and the miraculous nature of Jesus' birth. Perhaps it had become a little dull inside of the minds of Joseph and Mary. And so they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And I like that Luke records this, lest we think that Jesus went rogue at this point at 12 years of age. No, he came under the authority that he knew that his father had put in his life. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart, verse 51. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. And if Jesus would submit to the authority over him, then we must as well submit to the authority that God has placed inside of our lives. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateoldridge.com.